1: That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
0: From KQED. Welcome to part two of our Bay Curious special on the Donner Party. If you haven't heard part one yet, you need to go back and take a listen to learn what happened when 81 people walked into the Sierra in 1846 and many never came out. Our quest was inspired by a Bay Curious listener.
2: My name is Afifa
0: Twill, and I want to know how the Donner Party impacted the Bay Area. Now we'll explore what happened next to the people that survived the Donner Party saga and how this disaster came to represent everything Californians wanted to forget. I'm Olivia Allen Price, you're listening to Bay Curious. We left this saga in part one, with the very last of the Donner Party being rescued from the mountains in April 1847. Here to pick up the story again is reporter
3: Carly Severn. In the place just outside Truckee, where the Donner Party desperately built their makeshift cabins when they realized the relentless snows had them trapped, there's now a museum set under the trees in a serene state park. This whole place pays homage to the Donner Party and to all those folks who came from the Midwest and walked over these mountains in the 1800s to make new lives in California. But back in 1847, after the last Donner Party survivors had been rescued from this place, people weren't quite so eager to remember. When the snows of spring finally melted, the horrible things that had stayed buried under feet of snow up here at Donner Lake began to be revealed in full, says Donner Party museum historian Greg Palmer. So everything's laying around on the ground. The people in
4: California now know this tragedy has occurred they are still trying to encourage their cousins and nephews and uncles back in the States to come to California. But now it's a little more challenging because of the tragedy that occurred here. You know, big black headlines, it's lousy PR. And so they wish
3: they could just wipe the slate clean. God, we've got to make this thing go away. The solution for California officials was a band of soldiers who were sent up to Donner Lake on a mission to take care of the mess a writer called Edwin Bryant went with them. And what he later wrote about that day was stomach churning.
2: Near the principal lake cabin, I saw two bodies entire, except the abdomens had been cut open and entrails extracted. Their flesh had been either wasted by famine or evaporated by exposure to dry atmosphere and presented the appearance of
3: mummies. Bryant and those soldiers... We're looking at what remained of the Donner Party. And according to Bryant, what was left, what the snow and wind and hungry wildlife hadn't claimed, was the evidence of sheer desperation. What it looks like when human bodies are stripped for food.
2: Strewn about the cabins were dislocated and broken skulls, in some instances, sawed asunder with care for the purpose of extracting the brains. Human skeletons, in short, in every variety of mutilation.
3: That military party scraped all the remains they could find from the forest floor and dug a hole in one of the cabins. And then, says Bryant, they set fire to the whole thing.
2: A more appalling spectacle I have never witnessed.
3: These soldiers weren't just performing a physical cleanup job. They were taking a truly shameful part of the state's history and erasing it from sight. This new California demanded it. As the Donner Party's dead were being burned up at Donner Lake, their family members who'd made it out alive were safe and warm, miles away to the west. Many of the survivors spent the immediate aftermath recovering in present-day Sacramento at Sutter's Fort, that same settlement which had acted as something of a Donner Party rescue command center during those long winter months. There had already been a lot of public interest in the Donner saga once those first survivors had escaped, says Greg Palmer.
4: The fact that it wasn't just a bunch of mountain men fur trappers and all that but these were women and children and of course the the kicker is the fact that it was cannibalism
3: like many people who suddenly find themselves at the center of terrible events donna party survivors found other people were already writing their story for them when the last survivor was rescued from donna lake The California Star newspaper published an account it claimed was based on eyewitness testimony from the rescuers. And what was in it set the stage for the demonization of the Donna Party. A more shocking scene cannot be imagined.
1: A woman sat by the side of the body of her dead husband, cutting out his tongue,
3: the heart she had already taken out, broiled and eaten. It casts the Donner party as terrifying ghouls, so hooked on the taste of humans that they'd somehow been transformed by it into cannibalistic monsters.
1: So changed had the emigrants become that when the rescuing party arrived with food, some of them cast it aside and seemed to prefer the putrid human flesh that still remained.
3: of what was published in the California Star is undoubtedly sensationalized or just flat-out wrong. But this story, published hot on the heels of the disaster, set the tone for how California looked at the Donner Party, and it haunted the survivors for years. Eliza Donner was one of the children of the Donner family and was just three years old when she escaped the Sierras. Both her parents and many more of her family died in those mountains. In later life, Eliza wrote a memoir. It details what she remembered of the disaster, but it's also about her life as a Donna Party survivor. She said for years, people came up to her and quoted that newspaper story and told her how much she and her family had degraded themselves in the Sierras.
2: Evidently, it was written without malice, but in ignorance, and by some warmly-clad, well-nourished person who did not know the humanizing effect of suffering and sorrow.
3: A lot of the public outcry was directed at one man, the very last person rescued from the Donner Party, Lewis Kiesberg. Now, you'll remember from part one how his rescuers noticed that Kiesberg, all alone at Donna Lake, was holding on to a lot of the Donna family's coins and possessions when they found him. And because Eliza Donna's own mother had been alive when the previous rescue group had left her, rumors began that Kiesberg hadn't just stolen her money up there. They said he'd murdered and eaten her and that he boasted about making soup from human bones. So from almost the moment he came down from the mountain, Kiesberg was a marked man. Some declared him crazy, others called him a monster, wrote Eliza, who knew how fast and how well the written word could be mobilized against someone.
2: Blood-curdling editorials increased public sentiment against Kiesberg stamping him with the mark of Cain and closing the door of every home against him.
3: But all the while, another man, the only actual confirmed murderer within the Donna party, received quite different treatments. You'll remember from part one, how the first cannibalism happened not at Donner Lake, but when a band of the strongest Donner Party members strapped on DIY snowshoes and made a break for it across the mountains. Two young Miwok men who were traveling with the Donner Party, called Luis and Salvador, were with them. And when supplies ran out on the journey, one man shot and killed those two so that the others could eat their bodies. That man was called William Foster. And because of who he'd killed, two Native Americans rather than a white woman like Eliza's mother, Foster never faced a reckoning for his crime. As Greg Palmer says, it wasn't even seen as a crime.
4: Uh, William Foster was never charged when they got to California. In the 1840s, it wasn't a crime to kill an Indian. They're only Indians, so that was the mentality of the day.
3: Foster had even joined the rescue party to voluntarily return to Donna Lake and bring more people to safety. To the white world in California, Foster was a hero, not a murderer. And condemning what Foster did, it would have meant condemning a mindset and a way of life that had greatly benefited many people who came to California to claim it for their own. And many more were about to make the journey. As dramatic as the Donner Party's life and death story was, the immediate aftermath actually marks this moment in time in California history that was like the calm before the storm. In the short term, what happened to the Donner Party scared people. Greg says that for aspiring emigrants contemplating the same trip, it was a cautionary tale.
4: The overland immigrant traffic dropped down to almost zero. There were a couple that made it, but the vast majority didn't because of what happened.
3: Then in January 1848, just nine months after Lewis Kiesberg was dragged off the mountain, gold was discovered in California. And those small flakes of gold in a river changed California forever. And most of all, for those that had lived here for centuries.
1: And and it's just incredible that indigenous people, indigenous to this land, could go from being the ancestral stewards of a place since time immemorial to all of a sudden just being a resource to be used for the, uh, you know, kind of capitalistic growth and enrichment of an American society that hadn't even been on this continent established as a nation for 100 years.
3: This is Dalton Brown, a member of the Wilton Rancheria tribe outside Sacramento. His ancestors, the Miwok and Nisanan people of this region, had made this land their home for hundreds of years. Settlers like the Donner Party wanted it. And now, with gold, everybody else did too. When white migration into California, which had been just a trickle, became a flood.
1: You know, it was a seven, eight-year period of time that saw over 300,000 49ers uh, rushing to this geographic area where I sit now, um, looking to make their their wealth.
3: Earlier colonizers had already hugely disrupted the lives of California's indigenous residents. But it's believed that in just those first 20 years after gold was discovered, 80 percent of California's indigenous population was wiped out not just by disease, but by destruction and murder. Those that survived found themselves displaced and their customs and cultures and very lives irrevocably altered by design.
1: There were insane restrictions put on our tribal communities that were meant to suffocate our lifeways, but also to rob our communities of land to make way for these miners and for these folks looking to make their, their riches really at the Uh, detriment of our indigenous communities.
3: California had a new self-image, a new way of being. And everything that came before that didn't fit that self-image was treated like dirt in the gold pan, to be discarded in the name of progress. As California bloomed under the gold rush, virtually all of the survivors of the Donna Party quietly, deliberately retreated from view. For almost all of them, what happened up by Donna Lake was something they never wanted to talk about publicly. Or even with their families, says Donna historian Greg Palmer.
4: I, I guess you could call it a code of silence. It Remembering that this is the Victorian era, and so, you know, speaking... Of anything that's very personal, particularly something that taboo as eating the flesh of people, was just not done. And so the shameful stigma of it pervaded most of the members.
3: So where did the survivors end up? If you're imagining they might have wanted to stick together, think again, says Greg. Uh, for the most
4: part, they all went in all directions. Uh, They didn't all stay as a cohesive group once they got to California.
3: Among so many families that entered those mountains, just two survived intact. One of those was the Reed family. And of all of the survivors, they probably made the best of it. Something you could chalk up to the fact that the Reed patriarch, James Reed, hadn't actually been trapped in the Sierras like his family was. Remember, he'd been banished from the Donner Party on the journey for killing a guy. James Reed got to California first, and while he was raising money to go rescue his wife and children, he also found time to do some land deals down in San Jose, the land where San Jose State University now lies. Reed bought that. So when the Reed family escaped, they relocated down to the new home awaiting them in the South Bay, where they settled into civic life with relative ease. After striking it rich in the gold rush, James Reed even became the chief of police in the San Jose Police Department. And into their home, they welcomed two of the Donner family orphans. The other survivors scattered more discreetly around Northern California. Petaluma, Sonoma, San Juan Bautista, Tamales Bay. Marysville and gold country is actually named after one of the Donner party survivors who lived there, Mary Murphy. After what happened, and what people can do in the very worst of situations, many of them never felt any desire to even speak to other survivors ever again.
4: So there were animosities
3: that weren't forgotten, which is totally natural. (laughs) And when you remember that very first newspaper story, who could blame them for wanting to disappear? The public seized on what they'd read, and if anything, remembered it as even worse. It took Eliza Donner more than 60 years to be able to write down what really happened to her and the rest of the Donner Party. And in those memoirs, she recalled being taunted by a total stranger years after the disaster.
2: He insisted that the Donner Party was responsible for its own misfortune and that he himself felt that the miserable wretches brought from starvation were not worth the price it had cost to
3: save them. The lack of compassion shown to the Donner survivors can seem startling to us. But perhaps most folks back then just didn't have the kind of emotional vocabulary we might use now to think compassionately about trauma. And then there's just the sheer compelling grisliness of it all, a testament to the longtime appeal of true crime. But maybe this new California swollen with people and gold and self-regard, also didn't want any reminder of early failures. Desperation and degradation, after all, hardly makes for a satisfying origin myth, especially if a person couldn't quite say with certainty what they'd have done if it had happened to them. For three decades after the disaster, that was that – Until in 1878, a newspaper man up in Truckee got a taste for this part of his town's local lore and decided to track down the survivors to get their side of the story and write the first ever book about the Donner Party. He was particularly intrigued in the fate of Lewis Kiesberg, the reviled survivor who'd had cannibal yelled at him in the street. Kiesberg, it transpired, had gone on to live a truly miserable life, dogged by infamy, death, and sheer misfortune. He'd even sued people for labeling him a murderer, but the judge sneeringly awarded him damages of just one dollar in each case. That book author even urged Eliza Donner, then in her 30s, to meet with Lewis Kiesberg. To give him the chance to confess if he really had killed her mother up at Donner Lake. Eliza agreed, and in her memoirs, she wrote how Kiesberg sank to the ground and said,
2: On my knees before you and in the sight of God, I want to assert my innocence.
3: If Kiesberg was lying, then he held on to his secrets for another 16 years, when he died, aged 81, penniless in Sacramento. Eliza Donner lived many years more. She was born before the railroads, but lived to see the First World War, and died in 1922, just before her 80th birthday. And 13 years after that, a woman named Isabel Breen died in the South Bay in 1935. She'd been just one year old when her family fought for their lives up at Donner Lake. And with her death, the very last of the Donna Party survivors, quietly left the Earth. We humans like to make meaning from things. The idea that there are lessons to be found within history, even the bad bits, like quartz hiding in Sierra Granite. And looking back at the Donner Party, yes, it's sometimes still treated like a pop culture punchline, the cannibalism, the grand plans gone spectacularly awry. But it's also seen by many as a kind of American tragedy. A group of questing pioneers in search of the California dream, cruelly denied, but it couldn't stop some of them prevailing. For Dalton Brown of the Wilton Rancheria tribe, The Donner Party saga tells a very different story about California and this nation as a whole.
1: I think the Donner Party has this kind of this glorification of the American spirit and having to do what needed to be done in order to survive that has become pretty synonymous with the way that America treats itself. Like there's this idea that, well, if I gotta step on a few necks to survive, then I'll do it.
3: For Dalton, The Donner Party's drive to acquire, that zeal to stretch out, to grab more, it doesn't just prefigure the gold rush, it's America in a nutshell.
1: I think that, you know, this idea of manifest destiny and and American exceptionalism is that um, there is this God-given and inherently um, given right that American citizens have to colonize a place because, in their view, it is making it better.
3: And the Donner Party disaster might kinda show us what happens when such an impulse isn't accompanied by a knowledge of the land you're coming to claim. Knowledge that the indigenous people who already lived here absolutely prized. As 81 people learned in the winter of 1846, this landscape, if you misjudge it, it can consume you whole.
0: That was reporter Carly Severn. Thank you for listening to our two-part special on The Donner Party. There's still a lot to the story that we had to leave out, but you can find more at baycurious.org. We'll also be including bonus material in our upcoming Bay Curious newsletter. It drops the first week in November. Subscribe at baycurious.org newsletter. This story wouldn't have been possible without guidance from the folks at Wilton Rancheria and Donner Memorial State Park. Thanks to you all. Bay Curious is made by Katrina Schwartz, Rob Spate, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is produced in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay warm.
2: Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck!
5: Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just...